I'm going to begin today with a question. How many of you came to church today? Raise your hand if you came to church. Okay, it's a trick question. Some of these people are too smart for you. We need, it's not just word games, we need to get this understanding. I find the Holy Spirit has to remind me often. We don't go to church. We are the church. And if we now were to pick up and move outside and sit under that oak tree, the church is out in the, in the under the tree. The church is not this building. And this is something I want to talk about today. And there's a very probing question that God himself asks in the Word that we're going to look at in a minute. And we're going to see if we can't get some revelation of God on this. I want to pray one more time. Father, we thank you that we are the church. We came together today because we are your church. You love your church. Lord Jesus, you gave yourself for her. And you're washing us with the water of your word, filling us with the Holy Spirit, preparing us for that great day when we will be wed to you. Oh God, what a great calling. What a great purpose you have for our lives. Bless each one here today. And Lord, enlighten us. Give us inspiration. Give us revelation. Give us illumination as we look to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, we have the account of Stephen. He preached a very long sermon. It was his first and last. He was the first martyr in the early church, followed by many, many, many other martyrs. And it would seem in the past few months, many martyrs have joined him. I've heard upwards of 40,000 Christians have been executed in Syria and Iraq in the last three to four months. This is not something that happened 2,000 years ago. Christians today are being asked, deny your faith or die. Praise God for the bold, courageous men and women and even children who have refused to recant, refused to bow down, and Christ meant more to them than their very life. Well, Stephen was the first one in the early church that that happened to, and he gives a very long history of Israel leading up to the Messiah and Christ, his life, his death, his burial, and all of that. But I just want to zero in on one segment here, Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 44. Do we have it? Acts 7, 44. Excellent. Read along with me down to verse 50. And again, we're quoting Stephen here. He's actually speaking to the crowd. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Now, Stephen here, just in a few sentences, summarizes a number of books of the Bible. 
And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know what he's referring to. But there are several distinct periods of time that he refers to where there was some sort of a dwelling place prepared for God. The first one was the tabernacle in the desert. It was a temporary dwelling place. They could put it up like a tent, take it down, carry it, and go from place to place. And for 40 years, the children of Israel traveled around in the desert carrying all of those poles and coverings and all of the furnishings that were inside that tabernacle. And that's the place where God said he would dwell in the midst of his people. Well, subsequent to that, we come into the time of the kings, King David. And then finally, as the passage there mentioned, David wanted with all of his heart to build some sort of a dwelling place, a temple for his God. But God wouldn't let him. And he said, rather, your son Solomon will be the one. And I believe that the grandest temple that has ever been built, ever, Old Testament, New Testament, any time in all of human history, the grandest temple that was ever erected was Solomon's temple. And it's interesting, if you go back a few verses, I think it's verse uh, 47, let's go back to 47 for a minute. It was Solomon who built the house for him. So it was only under King Solomon that God finally had a house. But if you read in 1 Kings 8, and we don't have time to do that today, when Solomon dedicated that house to God, he prays a long prayer of thanksgiving and blessing. But one of the things even Solomon realized is this isn't big enough for God to live in. This grand temple that I have built, it's not enough, it's not big enough, it's not really the place where God is going to dwell forever. It's a temporary place where God is going to live. And then in the next verse, Stephen is actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. Say that with me. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. And I maybe I'm becoming a little more sensitive to this, and I don't want to get angry at people, but it's starting to bug me now when I hear so many pastors talking about their temple, going to the house of God on Sunday. This is the house of God. Can we build a house of God? That would seem to be rather arrogant and presumptive to me. If I'm going to say, I can build God a house, when God himself says, he doesn't live in houses made by men. Key words, keep those in mind. Houses made by men. And then he's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, in the next verse. Let's go to 49 now. And here's what the prophet said. God is speaking, of course. Heaven is my throne. How many of you have a footstool of some kind in your house? A little something to prop your foot up on. I have a reclining chair. It's the same idea. It has a little thing that my feet can rest on. Well, the earth is God's little footstool. <laughs> the whole earth is his footstool. The heaven is his throne. And with that information, he then asks this question. This has been bugging me, speaking to me. How many, how many of you know what I'm talking about? When God has something he wants you to get, he won't leave you alone. He'll keep repeating it. You'll keep repeating it. You'll keep reading it. You'll keep praying over it. Well, this has been going on for some months now. This question. What kind of house Will you build for me, says the Lord. So much of the church's time, money, and effort. When I say church, I don't mean New Life Church. I mean church global. 
so much of the church's attention, time, money, energy goes into building physical structures and then calling them the house of God, God's temple, God's sanctuary, and we get all religious because we're now in the sanctuary. Let me help you here. This is a beautiful place. It's not ours. We're guests here. We're here for a little while. We don't know how long we're going to be here. To be very honest with you, we really can't afford to be here, and I'm not sure how much longer we're going to be able to sustain that, but we're here for a little while. So enjoy the cushions and the red carpet and the nice sound system. But this is not the church. You did not come to church today. We are not in church today. We are church. And God's whole emphasis is not on bricks and mortar and windows and steeples. His emphasis is on people. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but there's only one house where God is going to be able to dwell. It's not made by man. It is not made by man. What kind of a house will you build for me? Do you think we can match Solomon's? I doubt it. And even if we could, Solomon realized that wasn't enough because the heavens and the heavens can't contain the glory of God. So, Here's a couple of questions that I take from all of this that I'd like you also to ponder with me. Where does God live and where does he want to live? Maybe you haven't thought about that, but that's what this is all about. A dwelling place, a house for God. Where does God live and where does he want to live? Coupled with that, what kind of a house does he want? And thirdly, what can we build for him? What can we build for him? Those are probing questions. And as I mentioned, in the Old Testament, they did have various structures, physical places, where God decided he would take up residence for a time, always in the midst of his people. But in the New Testament, we find something totally different. God is no longer dwelling in buildings. God is no longer dwelling in tents or tabernacles or man-made structures of any kind. He's not. And what we want to focus on this morning is, where does God live? Where is God going to live for all eternity? And how do we fit into that? In other words, what is God's eternal dwelling place. And I want to begin with a very well-known scripture in Matthew 16. We all remember this encounter between Peter and Jesus. Peter, who do they say I am? But there was a second question. Who do you say I am? That's a very important question for every one of us in this room. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a prophet? Is he some religious guy? Maybe he's the figment of people's imagination? Or I don't know. Well, it's a question we all should answer. Who do you say I am? And you remember, Peter had the right answer. And picking it up in Matthew 16 from verse 15. Matthew 16 and 15. But what about you, Peter? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now, you know, I'm a teacher, and I ask questions all the time. And, you know, kids are raising it. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And they're so happy when they've got the right answer. And, you know, the teacher's supposed to say, good job, Johnny, you got the right answer. Well, that's kind of what's going on with Jesus and Peter. Peter's like, I know, I know, I know. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good job, Peter. You get an A for class today. 
but you didn't figure that out. This was revealed to you by my Father. Next verse. And here's where I want to focus. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overcome it. And you've probably studied this before. I find it fascinating. Jesus often played around with words. And we miss it a lot of times in the translation. But in the Greek here, there's he's playing around with the name Peter and the word rock, which sound almost the same, but not quite. The word for Peter is Petros. The word for rock is Petra. And so Jesus is saying, you're Petros, but on this Petra, I'm going to build my church. Petros means a piece of rock. Petra means a mass of rock. The Amplified Bible, let me read to you how they translate it. I found this, I found this interesting yesterday. And I tell you, you are Peter. And then in parentheses, Greek, Petros, a large piece of rock. And then on this rock, and then in parentheses again, the Greek, Petra, a large rock like Gibraltar. I like that. A large rock like Gibraltar. I will build my church. Contrary to what many have tried to prove, Jesus was not telling Peter, I'm going to build a whole church on you. No, 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 no. You're a little piece of me. You're a little rock. You're a little Petros. And I'm going to use you, and you're going to be a part of what I'm doing, but man, there's a much bigger rock involved here that's going to be the foundation of this building. But I want to draw your attention, as I often have, and we need to keep reminding ourselves of this. And we're, we're dealing with this question, what kind of a house are we going to build for God? Well, I think here's his answer. I will build. Say that with me. I will build. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And basically, the whole purpose of the New Testament was not just for Jesus to come, die, be resurrected so we can all escape going to hell. That's wonderful. Praise God we're not going to hell. Praise God we're not afraid of that anymore. But if that's where it all ends, there's no point in having all the chapters and books that we have in the New Testament because most of them are devoted to describing and explaining what is this church that Jesus talked about. You know, it's interesting, only twice in the four Gospels do you even find the word church. It's not the main focus of the Gospels. The focus of the Gospels is to reveal Christ to us. we got to start with Jesus. It reveals being born again. It reveals the importance of salvation and repentance and forgiveness of sins. But after you finish with the four Gospels, you come to the book of Acts, you start hearing this word lots and lots. Church, 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 church. And again, I'm afraid many people have lost the sense of what it is. It's not big buildings. And it's sad that the history of most Christian movements goes something like this. God moves. There's a revival. A group of people get touched. They, they repent. They're saved. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. God starts to move and there's an excitement. And what's the first thing they begin to say? We need a building. We need a building. Who said you need a building? And I have searched both the scriptures and I've searched history. I can find no record of the early Christians. Certainly there's no record at all in the New Testament of Christians having building programs, going way in over their heads in debt 
to build four, five million dollar temples. And let me tell you something, they were having revival. Thousands were coming to Jesus. And we're not really told much about where they were meeting, except they were going from house to house. And I think wherever they could find a roof over their head, that was church. And my fear is that the church is really moving further and further away from that and getting caught up in this worldly mindset that the church is supposed to be a corporation with a headquarters and a fancy $5 million building that impresses everyone when they come in there on Sunday. We are the church. And Jesus is telling Peter, you're a part of what I'm going to do. You're a little rock, I'm the big rock, and on this thing I'm going to build my church. And keep this tucked away in the back of your mind because in a little bit we're going to go to 1 Peter. And by no accident, Peter there talks about Christ, the living stone, and how each one of us as believers, we are also living stones. I'm sure it goes back to this encounter that he had with Jesus where he got a revelation of Christ the rock, Christ the living stone upon which this thing called the church is going to be built. So to answer the question, the building where God is going to live forever is the church. Not buildings like this, buildings like you. That's where God is going to live forever. You see, God is not interested in brick and mortar. He made all that stuff. He could have made a far better temple than Solomon or anybody else could have ever built. But what he's interested in is dwelling in the midst of people, living inside of people, building people together and making them his temple. It's a strange thought. We have to have our minds renewed because we're so used to talking about physical structures and buildings, but God doesn't dwell in them. God dwells in people. Now turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Another key passage in this discussion. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 9 to 16. Ready? For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Stop right there. Say, I am God's building. We are God's building. We are the building. That's amazing. Think about that. We are God's building. Now, churches like to brag about their buildings. You know, the bigger, the fancier, the more expensive. That's my church, man. Seats, 18,000. We have to have 10 services every Sunday. God goes around bragging. He says, that's my building. Those little people there that were on Abram's Abram, the Brandon Road, that's my building. He's proud of his building. He's not the least bit interested in bricks, concrete, steel, and mortar. He's interested in people. And we are God's building. Okay, verse 10. By the grace God has given me, Paul, of course, is speaking here, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one, what's no one mean? Almost no one? No one can lay any other foundation than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, 
the day when Jesus returns, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know? Verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Say, I'm God's temple. I'm God's temple. I know I am God's temple. I know I'm God's temple. Don't you know that? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit, who won't live in a building, lives in If you have trouble sleeping and I don't count sheep, let's meditate on that. God wants to live in me. He wants me as his temple. Can't, I mean, I'm a scientist also, and this this is where I have to kind of shut my brain down because you, you can't you can't figure it out. How can God live inside me and you? And if there were that many believers on the earth. He'd be living in 7 billion plus people right now. I don't know how he does it, but I know he does it. And I know he's living in me. I know he's living in you. And Paul is very direct here. You're God's building. I already laid the foundation in your lives. It's Jesus Christ. Now be careful how you build on that foundation. It's going to be tested and Then he finishes reminding them again, don't you know you are God's temple? There's another passage similar to this that I want to read quickly in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3 from verses 2 to 6 basically talks about the same thing. God is the builder. We are the house. We are his building. He, in context of speaking about Jesus, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house, follow this with me, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone But God is the builder of everything. Say that last part with me. God is the builder of everything. You know I'm going to do it. What's everything mean? Everything. He's the builder of everything. Finally in verse 5. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. And then one more verse, verse 6. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Read this next part with me. And we are his house. Say it again. We are his house. So we don't go to the house of God. We are his house. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. I now want to turn right to another very key passage in this whole discussion. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. And if you're not familiar with these verses, I would strongly recommend that you jot these down and study them on your own, because this is life-changing. When, when you and I really begin to get this vision into our lives. It changes our whole perspective on things. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone 
In him, that's in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Go back to verse 20. Remember Jesus told Peter, you're a little piece of the rock, but I'm Gibraltar. Well, here's a further explanation of that. This building is called the church. It has a foundation. We already learned that in 1 Corinthians 3. It's Jesus Christ. We dare not build on anything other than Christ. And there are many, many things happening in the world today that are built on human philosophy, human wisdom, human opinion. I'll be honest with you, I don't have time for it. It's worthless. I want to make sure I am building my life on Jesus Christ. Not just a set of doctrines, rules, do's and don'ts or commandments, but on a person who came into this world, he gave his life on the cross, went into the grave, three days later, rose in victory and power, and has now ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's doing something. He's building his church. I want to make sure that's the foundation of whatever I'm doing. And I don't mean to sound harsh or mean, but I really don't care what your opinion is, and I really don't care what my opinion is. What I care about is who is Jesus, and what is his life, and what did he say, and how can I be sure I'm building upon Jesus Christ. There's too much now in the world, like Pastor Quasi was saying, we like to sit around and debate God. Debate the Bible, which parts we're going to believe, which parts we're going to cut out. And we can have all the long debates and discussions we want, but in the end, opinions aren't going to save us. The blood of Jesus Christ is what's going to save us. Repentance and faith in Christ is what's going to save us. Christ in you will be the hope of glory for you, not your opinions. So, uh, we're welcome to our opinions. That's okay. But after all is said and done, the Word of God needs to be our ultimate and final authority. And He is the Word. Jesus Christ is the Word. Now, so Peter, James, John, the others, together with prophets, became this foundation, this bedrock upon which this whole structure is now being built, the church. Notice the foundation is not bricks and mortar, it's people. This is The whole building is made out of people. It's a figurative term when we talk about building. The, the cornerstone is a person, the foundation is people, and the rest of the building, we're going to learn in a minute, is also people. But there's something very important about the cornerstone. Whenever a building is built, I don't know where it is on this building, but I'm sure if you go outside and walk around the building, you'll be able to find the cornerstone. And it has a date in there when the foundation is laid and all of that. The cornerstone is important for several reasons. It sets a pattern for all the other stones that are to be laid along with it. It's not the only stone, but it, the design of the cornerstone dictates the size, the shape, the design, the orientation of all the rest of the stones in the building. So it's Christ who is the ultimate standard from which every other part of the building is measured. The, the, the cornerstone is always the most significant stone in the structure, and, and the whole direction, the whole orientation of the building is determined by that one stone. Because now everything has to be square, everything has to be in line with that stone, and all measurements are taken now from that 
cornerstone. So all the measurements, all the opinions, all the orientation of your life and mine must continually trace back to Jesus Christ. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How did Jesus act in a situation like the one in which I'm going through? And that way he begins to become the cornerstone of our life. Now, remember I told you, keep in mind that exchange between Jesus and Peter. You are the little rock. I'm the big rock. Well, Peter never forgot that. And if you turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to notice how much he talks about stones here. (laughs) 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 4. As you come to him, that's Jesus. And by the way, we don't come to church. We come to Jesus. We come together, but we come to him. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, Say, I'm a living stone. I'm a living stone. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a living stone. And husbands don't say it in a mean way to your wife. You also, and by the way, has anybody ever seen a living stone? This is the only place I've ever seen. Stones are dead. But Christ makes living stones. You also, like living stones, are being what? Are being what? Are being built. There's this building again. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. It's not a physical house. It's not a material house. It's a spiritual house. God is spirit, and he's going to live in a spiritual house. Being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Say, I am a priest. I'm a priest. No. Here again, we've got it all wrong. Religion has polluted our minds and messed us all up. I am a priest. Say it. I'm a priest. You're a priest. We are becoming a holy priesthood. Offering not animal sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We offered some spiritual sacrifices earlier this morning. The Bible talks about the sacrifice of praise. He loves that sacrifice. Far better than a thousand sheep or bulls or goats. Next verse. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion. He's quoting Isaiah 28. A chosen and precious what? Cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. I'll just pause here for a minute. For some people, Jesus Christ becomes very precious. He becomes the cornerstone of their life, the foundation of everything they do. But for many other people, they trip over that stone. They stumble. It's called the rock of stumbling. And many people are offended at Jesus. And I really want to encourage you to come for this movie on the 27th, God's Not Dead. It's a very powerful movie. We've seen it several times. And it's very realistic. And those of you that are in school, whether it's elementary, high school, or, or college, 
It's very, very relevant to what's going on in our whole educational system where Christ is, is hated, Christ is mocked, students are told day in and day out, there's no God, God's dead. What fool you are to believe in a God. And, and this is the culture we're now in, but it's because people are stumbling over the same rock that's precious to you and me, that's becoming the foundation of our very lives. A rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey. Next verse. But you are a chosen people. Say, I'm a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You weren't born that way. Look at the next verse. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Living stones. A living rock underneath the whole structure. And now we're learning more about this building. It's made up of living stones. And those living stones are believers. Very clear from what Peter says. Those who are hating Christ, rejecting Christ, disobeying Christ, not believing in Christ, they're not living stones. They're dead already. And we need to pray for them that they'll come to a, a faith in Christ. But the living stones are the believers. Those who have found Jesus Christ to be precious in their lives. Now, lots of scriptures I would love to talk about today, but I don't want to take the time. And we've addressed them in previous Bible studies and messages, but let me just uh, give you a quick summary. And if you want to write down the references, you can, but we're not going to bother going to them. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the, the building again. And this time he compares the church to a body. Again, it's made up of living parts. A head and arms and legs and so forth. He says, there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers that God separates and gives back to the church to help prepare the saints, help prepare all of the living stones and living members to do the work of the ministry. And he says that the body of Christ may be built up, that they may grow up into him, and it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Say that with me. As each part does its work. What's each mean? Raise your hand if you're an each. Each part must do its work. You know, if you have even one little portion of cells in your body that stop functioning, they die. And your body will do everything in its power to get rid of that dead part. And the church is the same way. We want every member alive, functioning, and doing its part. And many parts of the New Testament talk about this. 1 Corinthians 12, if you're not familiar with it. Read the whole chapter about the body, head and eyes and ears and all the different parts are important. They all function together as one unit. By the way, how many of you have a body? How many bodies do you have? Can you subdivide it? Unplug it? Pieces. You're one. You're one. There's one church, one building that God is bringing together with Christ as the chief cornerstone, apostles and prophets together with him forming the foundation, and it's made up of these living stones. But it, because it's living, it's growing. It's rising. It, it's a living building. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 
Paul talks about all the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. What does it say there? The manifestation of the Holy Spirit is given to apostles and prophets, and the rest of us are spectators. What does it say? The manifestation of the Spirit is given to my favorite word. All, everyone, whatever your translation says. Everyone has been given, think about those words, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. God wants to show himself through your life, through the Holy Spirit. So that when people see you and hear you, they're not looking at you, they're not listening to you, they're hearing God speak through you. They're seeing God live through you. That's powerful. People don't want to see you or me. They don't want to hear what we have to say, but they do want to hear what God has to say. They want to see what God is really like. And so the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is given to each one. And then he says, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one as he determines. Now, why does God give these gifts or these manifestations to each one. Very important. And if you skip ahead to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, you find the answer. Time and time again, I think I counted five, six, seven different times in the course of chapter 14, Paul uses the word edify. What does edify mean? Literally, what does it mean to edify something? This is an edifice. I'm giving you a big hint. Edify means to build. It's a fancy word for building. So whenever he speaks about gifts, whenever he speaks about each member of the church, of the body, they're all responsible for building. Let me read to you a couple of examples of this in 1 Corinthians 14. Let's go to verses 3 and we'll jump around from there. 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening. That word in King James and in the original language is edification. For their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Keep going. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. That's good. Go home, get in your prayer closet, speak in tongues, pray in the Spirit, but come to church and prophesy. Have a word from the Lord. What does it do? What does it do? Now, only pastors can do that, right? Now, what is that? The pastor who does that? He who prophesies edifies the church. I want to encourage you today. Number one, make sure you're saved. Number two, make sure you're full of the Holy Spirit. Number three, find out what your gifts are. Find out how the Holy Spirit wants to use you. There are some people in this room now who are sitting on gifts of the Holy Spirit. Maybe fear. Oh, people think. And you know what you're doing? You're robbing from all the rest. Everyone could be edified by what you have to say. Next verse. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets. And this is always the, the, the barometer, the measurement of church life. So that the church may be edified. Paul is saying, don't just get up to show off and, and, you know, draw attention to yourself. If you have the right motivation, you want the church to be edified, God will use you. You will do your part in helping to build that church. All right, quickly, uh, jump down while we're here to verse 12. 
So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts. And by the way, be eager to have spiritual gifts. That's good. Pray. Give yourself to God and say, Lord, I want you to use me. I don't want to waste my time while I'm here on this planet. I want you to use me. I want my life to be a blessing to others, to help build your church, and to impact other people's lives. Use me. Be eager of spiritual gifts. But then he says, try to excel in gifts that do what? Build up the church. Build up the church. And finally, while we're here, go all the way down to verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together? Oh, wait a minute. Everyone? Marie, that right? No, no, no. Just the two pastors, right? And maybe uh, an elder or something. Help me here. What does it say? Everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction. How many of you brought a hymn today? You should have. Some of you should be coming to church with a song bubbling up in your heart. We're quenching the Holy Spirit. We don't have to just follow three songs that we picked on the computer back here. If God gives you a hymn, if God gives you a song, either come to someone who's helping with the music or grab the microphone and start singing. We'll join with you. Everyone has a hymn, but only the pastor has a word written. How many came with a word today? Okay. I'm sure there are more. God spoke something to you. That's not just for you. Maybe it is, if it's a personal matter, but nine times out of ten, the rest of the church could probably benefit. Everyone has a hymn, everyone has a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And here's the final test again. All of these must be done for the edification, the building up, the strengthening of the church. I want to encourage you in coming days and weeks, let, let's get out of this mode of I came to church today, I sat and watched the performance of church, and then I go home. No, I am the church. And even on the way here, you're getting a hymn, you're getting a word, you're getting some sort of a testimony or an inspiration, and we can all participate in what God is doing. This is not a one-man builder. We are all building the church. We're all the building and we're all the builders. Alright, let me bring this to a close. One of the questions I ask is, where is God going to live forever? Do you know the answer to that? He's going to live in us. It's exactly right. And you could have understood that even from the verses we read, but let me finish by going to Revelation 21. This is literally where God's going to live. Amen. Revelation 21. For the sake of time, we'll pick it up at verse 2 and just read down to verse 4. God's going to live in the New Jerusalem. It's called the Bride of Christ. It's called the City of God. But it's not made out of stones and pillars and cement it's made out of people Revelation 21 starting with verse 2 and I heard a lot verse 2 I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God here's the first hint that this is humans and not just stuff prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Next verse. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the what? The dwelling. King James is better. The tabernacle of God. 
is in stones, in bricks, in wood. The dwelling of God is with men. That answers our question. God wants to spend eternity in people. The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. If that isn't good enough, look at the next verse. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. We are the tabernacle of God. We are the city of God. We are the bride of Christ. We are his temple. We are his eternal dwelling place. And when you, when you really let that sink in, that this is where God wants to live forever? Wow. He could have made a temple out of pure diamond if he wanted to. He owns all the silver, all the gold, all the diamonds and everything else. But no, that doesn't interest him. He wants people that he can live with and live in for all eternity. All right, let me summarize this in closing. There's no mention anywhere in the New Testament of the early Christians building temples or building churches. If you find one, let me know. But I've scoured the New Testament. No, not even a hint of building funds, laying foundations for big temples in Jerusalem or anywhere else. All we hear about is a church. The church in Antioch. The church in Jerusalem. And most of the times what we do find is they were going around from house to house preaching the gospel, eating together, having prayer meetings, and then they got beat up, thrown into jail, persecuted, and they went on to another city. <laughs> no evidence that their emphasis was on all of that. Their emphasis was on being built together and being built up in Christ to be a holy temple for God. And God's whole emphasis is also on us. It's on us. It's not on grand building projects. I listed four key components to any building. And I, I took this from physical building. And I find that the same things apply to this building that God is constructing, namely the church. The first thing is you need an architect. You need someone who can draw plans, blueprints, map the whole thing out before a shovel has even been touched. That architect has the whole plan. And you've probably seen these little miniature models they make of the whole city long before anything's been built. They've already visualized the whole thing. Anybody want to guess who our architect is? <laughs> Put Hebrews 11.10 up. Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And that actually covers point number two. You need an architect and then you need a builder. You can have the best plans in the world. I can come over to Quasi's house this afternoon and give him a big roll of blueprints and say, hey, Robert, here's your house. It's a little hard to live in that, isn't it? You better find somebody that even knows how to read that thing and interpret it and then know how to start building it. God is the architect. God is the builder. I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Third thing we need, and we talked about this, you need a foundation. You can't just go out into a field and start putting bricks on top of each other and think you're going to have a building that's going to last very long. Any building that is built to last has a deep and a firm 
foundation. We saw that Christ, together with the apostles and prophets, forms the bedrock, Gibraltar foundation of this thing called the church. He's the chief cornerstone, and everything else is patterned after Christ. Fourthly, there's one thing missing. What is it? We've got the blueprints. We've got the builder. We've already got our foundation laid. What do we need to finish the building? You need the stones. Where are we going to get the stones? <clears throat> you. Go find some more stones in your neighborhood. Go gather some more stones at your workplace. We need to find more stones. The building materials for this building are living. They're people. Stand with me this afternoon. Paul told the Corinthians, I've already laid the foundation, but be careful now how you build upon it. And he mentioned two classes of materials. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And he said it's all going to have to pass a final test. This is the part that troubles me. He said the day, capital D, is when that test is coming. It's too late to change then. If we need to make any adjustments, now is the time to make adjustments. And wood, hay, and straw goes up real quick in the fire. To me, it's always spoken of human effort, human projects, human intellect, what man is trying to build for God. We can't build anything for God. We need to humble ourselves, empty ourselves, and say, God, build us. Build us. Give us the right materials to build with. How many of you know how to create gold? You know, scientists have not found out how to do that. How about silver? How many of you know how to invent silver, make silver? Only manual? Have you ever figured that one out yet? Get your chemistry set out. See if you can't make some silver. Well, gold and silver are elements that God created in the beginning. We can't create them. We're 100% dependent on God for silver and for gold. And then there are the costly, the precious stones. They've tried to make artificial diamonds and all this stuff. It is. Sorry. It's just not the same as a real diamond, a real topaz, or you know all the other precious stones. What am I saying? What God wants to build this church out of is all up to him. All of the pieces, the foundation, the plans, the skill to build it, it's all on him. And yet, he's wanting to include you and me as a part of that. And as we begin to work and move together, we find that we can build one another up. We can encourage each other. We can grow closer together as that living building. And God loves to dwell in the midst of saints. Behold how good and pleasant it is to dwell together in unity. No wonder the devil is continually lobbing bombs and rockets at churches, trying to split them up, divide people against people, have quarrels and anger and unforgiveness, and this group is against that group. He has a field day when he can do that. But oh, we need to pray, Lord, build your church. Pray with me this afternoon. Lord, build your church. We didn't make that up. You said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're not interested in what man can build for you. No temple, no sanctuary, no building on earth could ever be grand enough for you to dwell in it. You don't dwell in buildings made with hands. You dwell in your building. You are the architect, 
You are the foundation. You are the builder. And you are the one who's creating the materials. Living stones. Precious stones out of which this temple is coming together. Lord, we pray that in these coming days we would see many more living stones brought forth to be added into the foundation and become a part of this living temple where you will dwell forever and ever. We give you praise and honor and glory for calling us, including us. And Lord, we say, here I am. Use me. Use me. Whatever gifts you wish to manifest through my life, Use me to build up others. Use me to impact others. I don't want to just waste my life down here on this earth, but I want it to have purpose and destiny. Fill me with your spirit and use me, O God. And Lord, even in this week ahead of us, we give ourselves to you, to your purposes, to your plans, to works that you've already planned for us. Let us walk out those things that you've already planned for us, and you will get all the glory and all of the praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.